There was an increase, yeah. The severity of the discipline is increasing. So it went from death uh, to, to like total destruction and fire and damnation and, you know, so it, yeah, it was an in kind of increasing order. Yeah, that's just an overall, relating it back to the false teachers uh, is just an overarching thing that I will talk about, that the, the specific sins of each of those people things, um, beings, is, is the same sin as being demonstrated by the false teachers, just generally. Any other questions? Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. Beautiful day and a sunshiny day, but Father, uh, no matter whether the sun is shining or not, we know that your sun uh, shines brightly, and, and may he shine brightly. May you be glorified. May your son be glorified through what we ha uh, do here today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just to give you a little bit of background, oops, did I forget to bring up the clicker? Is it sitting there? Where did I put the clicker? Uh, there we go. Thank you. Uh, just to give you a little background on what we're going to talk about, I want to start with a couple of quotes. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, because this kind of is a, um, get, puts a frame around what we're studying in Jude. No, that's not the hand I usually put it. What are, oh, no, I can't. Oh, <laughs> I've been away. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Okay, yeah, I do. Oh, back. Um, now, I need to tell you before we start that Jude and 2 Peter are very much related to one another. In fact, one of the reasons I decided to teach Jude is because I, I needed some more stuff, and uh, so I needed more than just 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and I already had the Jude commentaries because I had the 2nd Peter commentaries, so I wasn't going to have to spend any more money to teach Jude. Uh, so, uh, because they are so closely related, there is so much similar content, they're dealing with the same kind of teachers, maybe even the exact same teachers. In fact, some theologians believe that either Jude used 2nd Peter to write his letter, or Peter used Jude's letter to write his, and we're not sure which, not even sure if that's true, but there's so much similarity. So you're going to see here in this quote that he mentions 2 Peter uh, in this quote. He says, the letters of 2 Peter, this is, by the way, Dr. Terry Muck, and I also used another one of my very favorites, Dr. Douglas Moo. I feel bad about his name, <laughs> but I really love his writing, so uh, you, you'll see a quote, couple quotes from Doug Moo, too. The letters of 2 Peter and Jude warn us about any tendency to treat sin lightly, to suppose that an immoral lifestyle can be pursued without penalty. And then uh, from Dr. Michael Green, so long as sin needs to be exposed, so long as man needs to be reminded that persistent wrongdoing ends in ruin, that lust is self-defeating, that intellectualism devoid of love is a barren thing, and that Christian theology has no right to outrun the faith once delivered to the saints, these epistles, meaning Second Peter and Jude, will remain uncomfortably, burningly relevant. How long will that be? Yeah, till Jesus comes again. Absolutely. These are very, very relevant, or this is a very, very relevant letter to our world um, because there's a whole lot of teaching out there that purports to be Christian that in reality is not. And there's a whole lot of behavior being justified as, uh, as good or as moral by people who purport to be Christians when in truth it is immoral. When you add to that our culture's um, uh, belief that tolerance is the highest value, 
you have, uh, and, and you have in our culture an intolerant, even sometimes a hostile envi uh, environment for teaching biblical truth. Uh, it makes all of this stuff really, really relevant. And this is what Jude is about. So, who wrote Jude? Well, Jude wrote Jude. Uh, and Jude identifies himself as the brother of James. And really the only James that could be is the James that wrote the epistle of James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, let me explain that a little bit to you. Uh, Joseph and Mary, Mary, had Jesus. Joseph wasn't his dad. Okay, he, was, he, he raised Jesus as his earthly father, but wasn't his biological father. Joseph and Mary had more children after that. One of those was James. Another one of those was Jude. So Jude identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. And so you do the math. Jude was also a half-brother of Jesus, would have grown up in the same household as him. Um, there is, by the way, almost no disagreement on this in, uh, among scholars, which is really amazing because one of their favorite things to do is to disagree with one another. So uh, there's almost no disagreement on that. When was it written? Probably, it's hard to tell, but probably sometime between AD 60 and 80. At any rate, it was written very, very early because right at the turn of the first century, so right about AD 100, this letter was being quoted by early church fathers. So it had to be written before then. Uh, again, there's almost no disagreement about that, that this is a very, very early letter that we possess. Um, because of the similarities between 2 Peter and Jude, it was probably written about the same time, uh, either just before or just after 2 Peter. So that would be in the mid-60s uh, AD. Now, where was it sent? Here's your answer. Who knows? Seriously. I mean, it was written to a Jewish Christian church somewhere in the Gentile world of the Roman Empire. Well, that narrows it down. Early church fathers tell us that Jude was well-traveled, so it really, truly could be anywhere in the Roman Empire, and we frankly just don't know. Why it was sent or why it was written is a lot easier to determine. False teachers, likely Gentiles, had, in the words of Jude, wormed their way into the church. Uh, and they were leading others astray. So this it has in common with the letters of John. Uh, but these were different teachers or different false teachers than in John's letter. They were from outside the church rather than inside the church. Now, by that I mean, because they claimed to be Christians, by, by that I mean they were outside the local church. They were from outside this body of believers, right? Because in John's churches, they had been members of those churches and they began to preach heresy. These are teachers that claim to be Christians, but that came in from other communities or from outside the church membership. So they were different in that way. And their, their teaching was also different. They were teaching that God's grace means that we can live as we please. Um, that we can sin as much as we want because God will forgive us. Uh, they were also denying Jesus Christ as Lord. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. So the teaching was different but the, from John's letters, but the result 
was the same. People were confused and tempted to follow these teachers rather than the truth of the gospel. So Jude writes this. The reason he's writing this letter is to shore up his reader's commitment to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This letter is first and foremost an urgent warning to what one theologian called wobbly Christians. They're, they're, you know, what did they call those things? Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Yeah, they're weebly. They're wobbly, and, and he doesn't want them to fall down, and so he's shoring up their faith. Now, before we dig into the actual content of the letter, let's talk about our theological elephant, shall we not? Um, Jude uses apocryphal writings. Now, apocryphal just means outside of Scripture. There is the apocrypha, and that may have confused some of you, which are writings that are accepted by the Catholic Church, but not by Protestant churches. I am, I'm not, nor have I ever been Catholic. I'm not sure if the Apocrypha is accepted like exactly on the same par with the rest of Scripture. Anybody know the answer to that? Or if they're just considered sacred writings, but not on the same par as the Old Testament and the New Testament. But be that as it may, for example, we're going to talk about today what is some, in some places called the Assumption of Moses and other places called the Temp- Testament of Moses. That's not in the Apocrypha. It's not part of any canon anywhere. It was a writing that was outside of scripture for good reason. And Jude uses, okay, you, you can help me. Well, I don't know for sure, but Jude, Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I know, yeah, but, it's, but is it, is it yeah. called the Apocrypha or is it just part of the Old Testament? Yeah. Okay, that's our Catholic scholar right there. Um, so, uh, but at any rate, this, this wasn't what part of what we would call the Apocrypha. By Apocrypha, I just mean that it's never been a part of any canon anywhere. It's outside of Scripture. It might be really good writing. I'll tell you what. I think two books, one I'm going to mention today, Mere Christianity and The Cost of Discipleship, are way up here in terms of Christian writings. But they're not Scripture. Uh, So, uh, you know, they were well-respected writings, but they were not part of any Scripture. But Jude uses them. So what do we do about that? Um, how, you know, how are we to, to handle that? Well, we'll talk about it more as we go along. But for now, just know that Jude was writing to a group of people who held these writings in high regard. So even if they did not see them as spirit-inspired or accept them as that, they did hold them in high regard. Now, Kay, did you have a question? There was an Old Testament canon. Yeah, yeah. So the, and that's what these, all of these writings would have been. These, these writings predate any New Testament. But to answer your question, I believe it's A.D. 325, although that's the, or 425. That's because I get third century and the numbers mixed up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I needed a better kindergarten teacher, obviously. But she's a kindergarten teacher. Um, so, uh, the, but the Old Testament canon was, was already in existence. And there were multiple canons. And like there was the Muratorian canon, which was one of the earliest ones, which was in a hundred something. And so the canon as we know it now uh, didn't come about for a, uh, for a while. But there were, but, but the canon as we know it now is very similar to that first canon, which was, I believe was a Muratorian canon. Very similar uh, to it, just fewer books in the first one. Anyway, um, so even if they didn't accept them, they held them in high regard, and we'll talk more about that as we move along. Let's begin with the first two verses of Jude. 
Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God, the, God the Father, and kept for Christ Jesus. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. By the way, this was the theme verse for the school where I teach last year. Uh, so it was fun for me to, to dig into it uh, deeper. Jude uses very much the standard letter writing form here that you all are all very familiar with now. Um, that you start with the name of the person writing the letter and then name of the people you're writing to and then you give them a greeting. But why doesn't he mention his relationship to Jesus? I'm telling you right now, if he was my half-brother, everybody would know it. Why doesn't he say, Jesus is my brother? Well, um, neither did James in his book mention that, if you recall, and the reason is very much the same. Humility. He didn't want to take that claim as his own, as if he did something. I mean, he was one of the younger brothers, probably, because he's listed last on the list of names. And so he didn't want to take that as being something that he uh, had done for himself. So that Jude grew up in the same home as Jesus gives him no special authority or position. On a much smaller scale, uh, most of you know that uh, my father was an Air Force officer, in fact, a general in the Air Force, which is a big deal if you're around the Air Force, ooh, you know. And um, very early on, not when he first, he pinned on his first star because we were really young then, but at some point when we were old enough to have an attitude about our dad being a general, you know what I'm saying, my mom sat us down. And she said, okay, and it might have been just before he pinned on his third star, I, I don't know, but she sat us down and she said, here's the deal. This is great for your dad. This is wonderful. Your dad's a wonderful man. You can be proud of your father. You should be proud of your father. You are not a general. It has nothing to do to you, do with you. You just happen to be born into the family. You've done nothing to earn this rank. He has. And she saw herself that way. And that's amazing, because I'll tell you what, you meet a lot of generals' wives that wear those stars on their own shoulder. Uh, and she did not, and nor did we. We were proud of daddy. But I understood that I had nothing to do with his rank. And I think that's what Jude is saying here. Yeah, he's my brother. But I just happened along. That doesn't give me any authority. That doesn't make me anything special. And in fact, he may have been ashamed that while Jesus was on earth, before he died and rose again, which, you know, that would make you go, whoa, dude maybe really was telling the truth about what he was saying. He may have been ashamed that he didn't believe in Jesus as Messiah until after the resurrection. And so he might have been saying, look, I can't. <laughs> when he was saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I didn't even believe him. So why should I take that as my honor? So in short, Jude did not see his familial relationship to Jesus as being the thing that brought honor or, or gave him um, any authority. The honor was all in being a servant of Jesus Christ. And then he says, to the believers. Now listen, most places it, it tells them where they are. So to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Galatia, he describes the people that he is sending this to. Jude describes rather than names the recipients of the letter. And in so doing, he's describing all of us. He's describing all believers everywhere. And he does this with a list of three things. And this is the first of a number of triads. He loved threes. If he was, you know, a basketball player these days, he'd, he'd love the three-point shot because he has triads all over the place. And, and these are what they are. 
Believers are called, they are loved, and they are kept. So first he says, to those who are called, calling means that God has reached out to bring helpless sinners into relationship with himself. Um, I went to a concert a week ago Sunday. My nephew was singing with a, a local band, my nephew from Nashville. It's a long story. And um, technically, he's my nephew-in-law, but I love that boy, so he's my nephew. Um, and they redid some hymns, which normally I don't like. I'm like, so you can do better than Bach? Is that what you're telling me? You know, normally I don't like that. Loved these hymns. And the one that spoke to me the most was Abide With Me. And the line in there, help of the helpless, Lord, abide with me. That's all of us. That's describing all of us. We are all helpless. We are all in need of God, of his mercy, and of his calling. God has reached out to bring helpless sinners into relationship with him. Uh, Jesus put it this way in John 6, No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God is the one who draws us to himself. The story of the Bible is not... Uh, the story of people reaching out to God. It is the story of God reaching down to rescue sinners. So our calling is all about God and what he has done for us in Christ. It is all of his doing, not ours. And that alone should cause us to stand in awe and worship. Then Jude gives us two results of this calling. Because we are called, we are also loved by God. John described that love magnificently, didn't he, in his letters. Of what country is this great love that the Father has for us, that he should call us his own, his children? This is how Dr. Doug Boo puts it. He says, as those who are called and therefore who belong to the people of God, we enjoy the experience of God's constant love for us. It's a beautiful thing. So those who are called, who are loved by God, and that are kept, and some of your versions say, by Christ Jesus, and some say kept for Christ Jesus. It can mean either, that word can mean either thing. Uh, so either Jesus is the one doing the keeping, Jesus is keeping us, or uh, we are being kept, or Jesus is the one for whom we are being kept by God. To be kept by Jesus means that he preserves us. However, that is a task that bib biblically is almost exclusively belongs to God, that God is the one who keeps us. It is not unusual for the Bible to attribute something that God does to Jesus because he's fully God. But I believe more likely it means that we are kept for Jesus, which means that God throughout this life exercises his power on our behalf to, to preserve us spiritually until Jesus returns. In other words, we are held spiritually safe by God as Jesus' bride until the bridegroom comes for us. Isn't that a beautiful picture? We are called, we are loved by God, and we are being kept safe for Christ Jesus until he comes. And then in verse 2, he gives this prayer, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Again, three things. 
mercy, peace, and love. And they are all things that Christians already have. We are already showered with God's mercy. We, are, we have peace because of our calling, and we know we are loved. But Jude's prayer is that we would have these things in abundance. Literally, it means that we would be filled to capacity with these things. Meaning that we would truly experience them and appreciate them in our everyday lives. And here are the three things. The first one is mercy. And that's an unusual word. What word do, do writers of letters usually put there? Grace. Grace. Very similar idea. It is slightly different. It is similar, but it is, it is different. Mercy carries the nuance of God not giving us what we deserve. We deserve death. We deserve punishment. Instead, he gives us mercy. Grace is, is God giving us what we don't deserve, giving us grace instead of punishment. Without God's mercy, we are all of us sunk. We stand in need of God's mercy. In fact, Dr. Green says every day of his life, the Christian stands in need of the mercy of God. Amen? Because we are literally lost without it. So Jude prays, may you understand and appreciate the mercy of God. For if we do, we will be grateful and live differently than the world. And then he says peace. That is not so much contentment, although that is true and God does give us that. But this peace that, that Jude is referring to is peace with God. Because of Jesus' reconciling work on the cross, we have peace with God. We have been reconciled to him. So Jude prays, may you know and understand what God has done by reconciling you to himself in Christ. For if we do, we will be grateful and we will live differently than the world. And then he says love, not our love for others, although we are to do that, but God's great love for us. Jude prays, may you know and understand the surpassing greatness of God's love for you. For if you do, you will be grateful and you will live differently than the world. And then in verses 3 and 4, he's going to begin uh, talking about his purpose in writing this letter. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in, literally that says wormed their way into, among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into license and immorality and deny, de deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. So Jude is eager to write to these people. Um, and he's, he was eager to write to them about salvation. Instead, he is writing to them to contend for the truth. Why? Why did he change his mind about what he was going to write about? Well, he's learned that false teachers are infiltrating this church, wherever it may have been. And that is why he's writing with such urgency to them. 
So the picture here is Jude, who's been thinking, you know, I should write that church a letter. He's been planning on writing this sort of nice, encouraging note to this particular church. And instead, after hearing about what was going on, he must hastily and urgently write to them about clinging to the truth, fighting even for the truth, and rejecting the false teachers. Because he says certain men have wormed their way into. That, that term certain men is a pejorative. He won't even name them. He won't even give them that dignity. Uh, and he says of these certain men that their, condemn, their condemnation was written long ago. Now that, that word can mean long ago. It can also mean already. So their condemnation has already been written. Either way, throughout scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, false teachers and false prophets were condemned. And he's saying these are false teachers and the, the, the whole counsel of scripture is that these men are to be condemned. In fact, Jude calls them godless. This new NIV says that they are ungodly, but a, a better translation would be that they are godless. Uh, and by saying godless, he means they are irreverent. They live without regard for God and his truth. So what were, they what were they teaching? What was the false teaching they were teaching? The primary thing, Jude says, was that they changed the grace of God into license for immorality. Paul dealt with this in the church at Corinth uh, and, and in other places, uh, this, this same thing. And essentially what they, they were saying, what these false teachers were saying, is that since our sins are forgiven... We can keep on sinning. I quoted this uh, Heinrich Henne um, quote to you earlier in, in John, but it's, it, it applies here too. He's reported to have said, uh, I like to sin, God likes to forgive. Really, the world is quite admirably arranged. And it's that thought that it really doesn't matter if I sin because I will be forgiven. Such a thought does not take into account the cost of our salvation. It cheapens it. Paul put it this way uh, when he was writing to the Romans. He says, what shall we say to this? He, he had been writing about the grace that we have in Christ Jesus, the grace that has been given to us because of the cross. So what shall we say about this grace? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? That's Romans 6, 1 and 2. If we understand the cost of the cross, that my sin put Jesus on that cross, that my sin delights Satan, how can I live in it any longer? How can I take it lightly? This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. In his book, which is one of my top two that I've already mentioned to you, The Cost of Discipleship. If you haven't read it, read it. It rocked my world as a probably sophomore, junior in college. Um, the cost of discipleship. And, and what Bonhoeffer says in there is that cheap grace cheapens the price paid for our forgiveness. Our, our sin cost God the life of his son. How can anything that costly for God come, become cheap for us, come cheaply to us? God's grace should compel us to obey. 
And if we are followers of Christ, it does. It makes us fall so in love with Christ, so in love with God, that we want to follow. Um, and worship. It should cause us to worship. I wish I could remember exactly the quote I'm thinking about from Cost of Discipleship. But he says that such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, and that is what grace is meant to be. So they were denying this need for obedience, this call for obedience, that we can just keep on sinning. They also denied the lordship of Jesus Christ, which could be they denied it in their teaching. But even if they didn't deny it in their teaching, they denied it with their lives, did they not? Because they refused to obey. Because um, as Lord, Jesus has the right to demand our obedience. So by their disobedience, the false teachers showed their unwillingness to bow to the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is practical atheism. It's living as though there is no God and Jesus is not Lord. Regardless of what you say you believe, your life tells a different story. So just as in John, we see in these verses a very high Christology. They turn the grace of God into license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Something that is generally only attributed to God is attributed to Jesus here because Jesus is fully God. So then what are these believers to do? If this is what is being taught, what are these believers to do? They are to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Now, saints there just means God's holy people. You could put in there Christians that was, that was um, entrusted to believers in the church. Man, that's a vivid word picture, isn't it? Contend. That word contend is athletic in, uh, imagery. Like if you, uh, my son wrestled in high school. Oh my goodness. That was, the only thing that was worse was when he'd pitch and I was worried he'd bean some kid in the head. Watching your, someone turn your kid into a pretzel and he puked after almost every wrestling match because it was so strenuous. It was so stressful. That's the imagery we're being given here to strive for the truth, to actively fight for it, to defend it vigorously. For what? For the faith, which can mean different things in different places. Here it means the content of our belief, what it is that we believe the teaching of the apostles and the gospels. This implies, by the way, that by this time, very early, in the mid-first mid century, so in the, uh, about the A.D. 60s, there was a recognizable, accepted body of truth that was accepted teaching about Jesus and his gospel. This is what Doug Moose says about that. He says, the point Jude is making is obvious. There is a set of beliefs based on the teaching and work of Christ developed and passed on by the apostles that is non-negotiable. To be a Christian is to agree with these beliefs. To reject them is to cease to be a Christian. Now, what are these beliefs? Well, we may not have time for that today. But if we have time, we'll talk about it briefly at the end. So he's going to move on here to some examples and application of what he's just said. How is it that we contend for the faith? 
In verses 5 through 7, he says, Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Uh, so these examples given in uh, 5 through 7, in these examples, Judah's reminding them of stories they knew well. But it's good to be reminded sometimes of what we already know, isn't it? Uh, and the first example was God delivering the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. But because they were disobedient, they died in the desert. The second example is of angels losing their position, choosing to leave their position. This is a little trickier, but in, in all likelihood, it's based on the standard exegesis of the day of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. So it's based on, this isn't the, the fall of Satan from heaven. This is in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. It talks about the sons of God coming down to mingle among men. And in Jude's day and before that, uh, the, the popular belief was that these were angels that weren't happy with their position as angels, that wanted something different, something better, and they came down to earth and mingled with human beings and, and with women, actually. Uh, and so they sinned with humans and so lost their position as angels, and they were judged. They were not content with their position, so they were banished and judged. And then the third example is Sodom and Gomorrah, which you all know well as well, and they were judged for their sexual immorality. Jude tells us that here. And then Jude turns and applies this in verses 8 through 10. He says, in the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, who was uh, disputing with the devil uh, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Um, so Jude's general point here, there's a lot in here that's kind of hard to understand, but his general point is easy to understand. These false teachers are exhibiting the same sins as those people and the angels in that example. Disobedience, pride, and sexual immorality. It doesn't matter how we live. God's grace will cover it. And like all those examples, they will be judged by God. Now Jude calls them dreamers, which probably means that um, they, they said, the false teachers said they had visions or dreams or special revelation from God that told them that it didn't matter how they lived, that they could sin with impunity. Um, and so what does he say they're doing? Well, first he says they slander celestial beings. That's a little tough, because there's disagreement on this. Because by celestial beings, that could be angels. It could be demons. So is he talking about good angels or bad angels? Well, um, it's, it's really, really hard to tell, and I'm not going to come down hard and fast, but Jewish tradition said that angels gave the law to Moses. Uh, and so in flaunting the law, in flaunting God's 
commandments, these uh, men were discounting the angel's importance as givers of the law. And that could be what Jude means, that in their disobedience, they are slandering angels as the givers of the law. But you will notice here, who was Michael arguing with? Over, he was arguing over Satan's body, but with whom? Satan. Yeah. And so if he's comparing these people to Satan, he may very well be saying they slander demons. Whoa. What's that about? Um, it may mean that he, they were taking them lightly, that they weren't accounting for the influence demons might be having over their own lives. By living their profligate lifestyles, they may be saying, the demons don't have any power of us. We're free to do this. Um, and even Michael didn't do that. Even Michael didn't slander, didn't rebuke Satan himself. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Um, and which one is it? Uh, I don't know. Take your pick. <laughs> I lean toward the second. But um, So what's this Michael thing? <laughs> that story is nowhere in the Bible. It is in a, a, a writing that we no longer have that is some places called the Assumption of Moses, some places called the Testament of Moses. Who knows? Um, and the parts that we do have of that uh, are no longer, are, or that we do have, don't contain that story. All we have are the writings of some early church fathers about that story. That's how we know that story is in the Assumption of Moses. That book, the Assumption of Moses, is nowhere in the Old Testament canon. So what are we to make about this? Um, the assumption of Moses was highly esteemed by Jude's audience. And Jude may have thought that this one story was true, even if he didn't see everything in the assumption of Moses as being true. Um, I think what we have here is a first century example of what we now call contextualization. Paul did that when he was in Athens. He contextualized his message to the Athenians. And so that may be what Jude is doing. Jude may also have been using it to make a point, much like a pastor or a teacher might use something like the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe or the Chronicles of Narnia to make a point about truth. Understanding that story is not true. You do all understand that, right? That story is not true. But does it teach truth about God? Absolutely. And so he may have been using it that way. Um, beyond that, I mean, we could, that could be a lecture in and of itself and we don't have time. And at the end here in verse 10, he says that the false teachers think they're learned. They say they have special visions or revelation from God. In truth, they are no better than animals. They are following their basest instincts and those instincts will destroy them. Well, let's end uh, just by, uh, well, this is, I love this quote. I didn't know ironical was a word, but Michael Green is a scholar and he's British, so that means he's smart. How ironical that when men should claim to be visionary, they should actually be ignorant. When they think themselves superior to the common man, they should actually be on the same level as animals and be corrupted by the very practices in which they seek to seek liberty and self-expression. I want to go back to this idea and just end with this, where Jude writes, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. We are the saints. We are the people of God. We are God's holy people. And it is our job, it is still our job today to contend for the faith, to hold tightly 
to the truth of God and not budge on it. And that necessitates at least three things. First, we need to know what is non-negotiable truth. Dave Branson, one of our institute studies, went to seminary and he said when he entered seminary, there were about a thousand doctrines he was willing to die for. When he left, there were about five. We need to not get sidetracked by pet theology. Not that they're not important, but we can get sidetracked by, do you dunk them or do you sprinkle them? Do you do babies or do you do adults? How do you worship? Uh, predestination. There are all kinds of theologies. And, and almost on all of those, I have very definite opinions. But I'm not going to break fellowship with my beloved fellow believers in Christ over it. That's not doctrine to die for. And we need to know what is non-negotiable. We don't have time to go over it, but if you want to get a list, a good place to start, read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, where Paul lays out at least part of that. Secondly, that which is non-negotiable truth, we need to know it well. We need to know it really well. And thirdly, we need to have the courage to stand and fight for that truth no matter what our culture may say, and no matter how our culture may change. Now, I'm going to put a quote up on the board from a blog, and I need to, because some of you may be aware of this, I'm not going to name the church, I'm not going to name the issue, because the church and the issue are not my point. My point is we are to contend for the truth, and the church and the issue could become divisive, and I don't want to do that and could be controversial. I just want to tell you that we are to contend for the truth. And Andrew Walker put this perfectly. He said this, that church thinks itself a contemporary, contemporary and culturally relevant church. Perhaps it is. But as Christians, we don't get to define what relevant means in terms that are unquestioning of what our culture means by relevant. I submit that the church is a church, that church is a church in retreat. A church in retreat doesn't give answers. It doesn't storm the gates of hell. It settles and makes peace where there is no peace. A church in exile, and that's how I describe the current placement of confessional evangelicalism, is one that is faithful amidst the culture, regardless of whether that culture looks more like America or more like Babylon. It knows that we may lose the culture, but we cannot lose the gospel. So be it. Amen? We may lose the culture, but we cannot. We must hold tightly. We must strive for. We must fight for the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you have given us truth. Thank you that you have not left us to flounder and figure out on our own what is true. But you have once for all entrusted this truth to us. May we be faithful with it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, ladies. One more week.